0: Hey, everybody. I'm Karen Hartglass. You are listening to It's All About Food. And if you're new to this podcast, I want to tell you a little bit about it. I have been broadcasting It's All About Food on the Progressive Radio Network since 2009. And on this program, we promote a whole food, vegan diet and lifestyle. I have spoken with So many people on this program, and personally, I've learned a lot, and I hope you have too. If you've been with me for a while, and if not, welcome. If you like the program, you can always go back in time and listen to any of the programs since 2009. We have them archived at the Progressive Radio Network, as well as at my nonprofit website, Responsible Eating and Living Just a little bit about me for a moment. I became a vegan about 35 years ago, and before that I was vegetarian, and my number one motivation was for the animals. I realized who they were, and I didn't want to be a part of their exploitation, their torture, their slaughtering. And it's been quite a journey since then. And on this program, we talk about many things related to food and using animals for food. We focus a lot on health because there's so much science today that shows the tremendous advantage of eating a whole food plant diet on reducing risks of chronic disease and increasing longevity and quality of life. There's also the impact of the environment and We just experienced what I am calling a dress rehearsal to the apocalypse here in New York City with the air from Canada, from the wildfires that are going on. It was very scary for a few days, and I know that we're going to experience some of this again, if not many times, and maybe this is going to be a regular occurrence for the summertime, and who knows where it's going to go from there. But a lot of this, this degradation of our environment, this increase in human-induced greenhouse gases to the air that causes all kinds of climate catastrophes, droughts, and fires. One of the biggest causes, if not the biggest, is the raising of animals for food, animal agriculture. And while it may not seem obvious to people as to why this is, it's linked to many things. Growing plants to feed animals to begin with. We're growing a lot more plants to feed animals. It's very inefficient. And in doing so, most often, it's not done organically. And so we use petrochemical pesticides, herbicides, and fertilizers. And we dig into the earth and pull out all that carbon and use it to, quote, nourish the soil or to make the soil able to grow foods because we don't take care of it and it's very depleted. And then this carbon goes out into the atmosphere. It's not a balance of carbon going out to the atmosphere and going back into the ground. At this point, it's not in balance and we're digging it out of the earth and putting it out into the environment. And as a result, our atmosphere is getting hotter and this is directly correlated to raising animals for food. There's also the shipping of the food for the animals, from where it's grown to where it's stored to where the animals are to feed them. And then there's the animals themselves that put out greenhouse gases from both ends, from their respiration and also from their flatulence. And then the animals excrete mountains of dung. And this also emits tremendous amounts of methane gas, nitrous oxide, things that heat up the environment. That's the environment. But what touches me most deeply is the treatment of animals or the mistreatment of animals. And we do it so carelessly without compassion. There are farmers that believe they're raising their animals compassionately, but is slaughtering an animal compassionate? <laughs> really, humane agriculture does not exist. So today's program is about animals and I was fascinated by the book we're about to talk about because it's such a different approach to educating people about exploitation and its impact on not only the animals, but on human animals as well. Today is going to be, I want to say fun, but it's probably going to be fun with a bit of heaviness because it's about reality, but presented in a very artistic way. I have with me cj jacobs and i'm going to read to you his bio on the book that we're going to be talking about salt a confessional animal liberation narrative cj was born as a large insect under a rock but through a series of increasingly unfortunate events now has to live as a human man he forgets when he became an artist but it's the main thing he does His work draws primarily from his experiences with non-human animals, specifically those rescued from slaughterhouses and other places of exploitation. Within his work, he hopes to create uneasiness with the assumed entitlement over animal lives. He fosters bunny rabbits and his friends with many chickens. CJ, it is a great pleasure to be able to have this moment with
1: you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Karen. And I am looking forward to discussing salt with you. Yes. So you live in New York? Yes. Right now I'm actually dog sitting in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. This is not my home, but... Oh, nice. Okay. Well,
0: house sitting, pet sitting sometimes has some nice perks,
1: right? It does. Like, yeah, this place is nicer than mine, but we don't... Yeah. 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 (laughs) But but yeah, I've lived um, somewhere in New York for, since I was 18 i
0: appreciate i appreciate art t j all forms i'm myself I'm a performer, some say that's cliche in new york but it's it's a need a lot of us have in order to communicate and express the craziness that we see all around us all the time all the time all the time you just graduated Parsons last year I understand. Right
1: yeah I graduated Parsons last year and SALT was it was started out as a personal project but I ended up working with my professors and they kind of allowed me to incorporate it into being my final thesis which was really great because it allowed me to spend a lot more time working on it and getting a lot of feedback so it could be like what it like is today. Yeah
0: yeah which yeah. we're going to talk a little bit more about but I'm I'm just curious so this past week, we went through an intense moment. I called it the dress rehearsal to the apocalypse. Yeah. I know. We, yeah. We had all these intense fires in Canada and the, the toxic air blew over to us in New York. And before that, a few years ago, I can imagine you were in college
1: when the pandemic occurred. I was. And yeah, and that that was, I mean, obviously devastating for like everyone. I think it definitely made my college experience really different in, I mean, if anyone else, probably a lot of us listening have like had the quote unquote Zoom university experience. And it was was really sad it was tragic to like, I think like lose something I don't even know that I've lost, like just socially. Yeah,
0: it definitely has informed your framing. As right. a person, as an artist, as a growing human, I have this philosophy. It keeps me sane, which is just to accept and move on, <laughs> not right. to resist, because if you resist, you're spending a lot of energy on something you can't control. So we deal. Yeah, but I'm imagining it was it was a very interesting time. Now, perhaps for an artist it wasn't as difficult for others who were learning other things that might have needed more interaction than something that you're doing with yourself on a
1: page. Right. Yeah. I, I will say like, I think like without the pandemic, I think my art would have definitely gone a different path and I don't necessarily know that would, what that would be, but I think I've always been a little bit of a jaded person and I think like salt reflects that a little bit and it was kind of like the pandemic kind of pushed me to like I don't know if necessarily reevaluate but like maybe be more reflective about like my state in the world and like what I was doing because like I think like with a lot of us I was like kind of you were somewhere when the before the pandemic began and then you were kind of extracted from it like I was like yeah
0: so how did you become the person that you are? Do you know? <laughs> uh, That's a
1: very big question. I am not sure. <laughs> like, I mean, so thinking about kind of like just my experiences in New York as like starting when I was 18 years old, like I think kind of like I got here and then I immediately found an animal rights group that was doing like work with caporos and if you don't know what that is it's like a religious ritual where chickens are unfortunately like basically tortured and killed and I got here when I was 18 I immediately started volunteering with that like just giving these chickens water and food before they passed and that was like I mean I'd been vegan before that as since I was 15 but that was like kind of like a foundational experience where i was like oh my god like it's so different to read about like injustice than it is to experience it and that i think coming to new york and seeing things firsthand that was kind of like stuff that was the experience that started to lead me to where i am today yeah and i unfortunately i did end up doing from the ages of like 18 to 19 i did end up doing like a lot of work related to slaughterhouses that yeah I think, like, to this day, it stays with me and, like, yeah. You can never not see that. Yeah, it's definitely, like, you can't go back. And it in, in mostly very unfortunate ways, like, I think that has made me had, have my more cynical outlook. And yeah, it's a thing I work on every day is like, I do believe in having hope and looking forward. And I do want to believe that, you know, there's goodness in everyone, but it's more something that I have to work on consciously, partly because I've had these experiences.
0: So was there a pivotal moment that made you vegan? You said you were about 15.
1: Uh, Yeah, so there was. So I, okay, so for context, I was living in upstate New York with my family I had been, you know, flip-flopping vegetarian because I had like animal sympathies ever since I was a little kid. But I would say the experience that made me like vegan, like like spiritually and like ethically, I would say was I actually worked on a quote-unquote like local humane farm because my mom actually didn't like that I was vegetarian at the time. And she also didn't like that I was sitting around. So she was like, I know a place for you. They're looking for like some young child that they can maybe pay under the table and yeah that was a really transformative experience for me because I was working with like local farmers and I I didn't hate them was the weird thing is I didn't like they're not quote-unquote bad people which I think is like another thing we'll discuss what that means is like they were very nice and then there was like this collective thing group that they'd be like okay here's what we're gonna do now now we're gonna pick out which of these egg-laying hens we send to slaughter like go through them and pick out which one is like the oldest one. And it was like, really, like, obviously that's such a horrible experience. And like, that was really jarring. Cause I mean, on like a factual level, it pulls back, like that. There's no such thing as like eggs and milk that aren't violent. And it also like makes me question a lot of humanity of like what it means to be like a good and kind person, because like these farmers were not quote unquote mean people and they thought they were doing a good thing by having a quote unquote humane farm and yeah I think that that was a foundational experience for me in my veganism and also just how I see people and how I think that like conventional morality how we discuss it doesn't always make sense to me because I think like a person can be nice to you and also commit atrocities because like the human brain allows you to justify so much that just doesn't make sense But yeah.
0: Yeah, I applaud you for your thoughts and for figuring out, maybe not figuring out, but seeing what you've seen. And it's a tremendous challenge that we have, acknowledging that people can be good and do atrocities or do things that some of us perceive as atrocities, because there's so much today and in all human history that's been considered normal and okay. And it and it's not yeah it's just not and it's and how do we express that and how do we interact I always like to say love is the only answer we'll see where it takes us I'm glad you have (laughs) hope (laughs) and um, it takes a lot of courage to do what you do drawing Mm -hmm. and expressing your thoughts you know and a lot of young people they get a they get a degree in something, some sort of skill, and they go off and work for some business and make right. their widgets and <laughs> do their business. And they have nice lives. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but to s- from the beginning, say, no, I am going to just express myself. Right. <laughs> it takes a lot of courage and and you're doing a great job of it. Thank you. Yeah. Whoo. Good for your mom for sending you off.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, mom. Did not get the result she was looking for, but yeah.
0: That's a funny thing, and that rarely does happen. But yeah. sometimes it's all for the best. Yeah. I so I was looking at your websites because I wanted mm-hmm. to look at your art after reading the book. And I want to I, I don't know if we're going to save the book for last, but I'm right. I'm talking about other things before we get to it. I wanted to see what else you've drawn you're definitely a a very good artist. What I noticed was the book Salt is dark Mm -hmm. and your other images, they have a lot of life and love and brightness. And that made me feel good because (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want to see all this darkness. And I'm glad to see that you have a lot of variety
1: there. Right, thank
0: you yeah I would
1: I think like I would like to think my art draws from like many experiences and like not all of them are as brooding and sad as salt. Let's jump
0: into salt because that's right. why we're here.
1: okay, <laughs> yeah, so
0: what happened was I've been doing this podcast since 2009, and a variety of publishers send me their books from time to time and Lantern sent me some books. I love lantern publishing i I am friends with. Martin Rowe, who was one of the co-founders and has now moved on to other projects, and Brian Normoyle sent me a bunch of books, and one of them was your book, Salt, Mm -hmm. and I was excited about it because I read every book that I get when I interview an author, and a lot of them take a lot of time, (laughs) and I thought, oh, good, This, this is like some kind of cartoony thing. It won't take that long. Right. And I jumped right into it. Wow. I didn't know what I was reading. I was confused at first and it just drew me right in. And I was touched in a deep way. Lots of questions. You know, sometimes there are no words and the art (laughs) is what you need for the words. And there are testimonials in the beginning of the book that really express the book very nicely. But I just want to say that you did a great job.
1: Thank you. Telling
0: a very difficult story. And I don't necessarily want to talk about the story, but I guess we're going to talk a little bit about it. Yeah. (laughs) But you chose to use characters that were snails and slugs. What did that mean to you?
1: So honestly, at least in the beginning, in my conscious mind, it was an aesthetic choice in the beginning it was somewhat of an aesthetic choice where I didn't really know how to draw people like human people doing these things and like I think in as the more I went on I realized I did have like more concrete reasons than that and like part of it is like yeah this is like obviously a narrative about humans but I kind of wanted them to be more stand-ins and that was kind of the beginning and like I think there there are like not to like get too into the details of the book there are like metaphorical choices in terms of like one character as a show one doesn't what does that mean and that wasn't even conscious and I think there are a lot of things that I'm doing that it's only like six months later when I look back I'm like huh that means something and for me that's a lot of what my art is it's very like impulsive and emotional and it's only like after a bit of work that I actually understand what it means which has been really weird to have written this book and then have people tell me what it means. And I'm like, wait, yeah, yeah, you're right. That is what it means that I didn't know that when I was writing it. And I think that's kind of, yeah. like, Yeah. um,
0: I don't know if you're a spiritual person, but do you feel like sometimes the universe is using you to put the drawings on the page?
1: I would like to think so, but I think I, a lot of the time I think that art is how I process a lot of traumas I don't understand myself. and which has been really interesting to see where I think a lot of my narrative work, specifically comics, are kind of me trying to let out feelings I don't understand on paper, paper or experiences I've had that I don't understand. Like salt is obviously fiction, but I would also say like every character in it and every, like part of it is based on real life. And that's kind of how I write is like, like, yes, this is fiction, but I don't really feel it is in another way because it's all drawn from real experiences.
0: Can we talk about the title? Yes. Because I didn't know, my partner Gary knew he explained it to me, <laughs> but I didn't know the relationship between salt and snails and, and slugs.
1: Right. Yeah, so I had a really hard time with a title because I wanted something short and like simple and I also like was having trouble with it cuz I don't really like I'm not going to call it the snail book with the monkey like um <laughs> like like I didn't want it to be like too like juvenile it's like oh Silas's great adventure number 1 and that was really hard for me it's like I didn't really know what to title it and then I have no idea when I decided it was going to be salt but I, like I think one day I just woke up I'm like oh duh salt like it kills slugs if they come into contact with it it's like this horrible thing that can happen to an innocent animal and like what's what are the vibes of salt there's like a lot of unease there's a lot of tension and yeah so that was the conclusion i came to it's like one day i just yeah. woke up and was salt like, oh. is a
0: terrible thing for a snail yeah. or a slug and it dehydrates them and gives them this painful awful death right and also the show is called it's all about food and salt <laughs> could be considered a food so it kind of fit, fits even more into the the conversation and just as a side note I don't encourage people to consume salt. I understand it adds a lot of flavor and restaurants like to use it because it makes it easier to make their food tasty without having to spend a lot more money. But most people consume too much salt and it contributes to high blood pressure (laughs) and other things. (laughs) So there you go with salt. So it's terrible for salt and snails and it may not be too good for humans either. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That was my little... Public service announcement on salt. So, this story is inspired in some way by actual events. I wanted to talk about that for a minute. There was this research scientist, Robert J. White, who died, I was looking on Wikipedia in 2010. He was an American neurosurgeon and known for his head transplants on living monkeys. What is that? That's ultimate insanity,
1: right? Yeah. I mean, I think like, I don't even like know how to begin, like describing how I feel about that. Like I feel sick to my stomach, like thinking about those animals who had to suffer for what quote unquote progress. And like, I think like I kind of settled on this monkey my fictional version of a real animal who's tortured just because of how that experiment of switching the head of one monkey onto another was talked about. Like it was talked about when you read the articles about it, when you read the YouTube comments, it's in this sensationalist way where it's like, that's so crazy, that's so gross. And there's no, at least not a lot that I saw, there's no reflection, there's no empathy for like, Oh my God, can you imagine what that must have been like for that animal and how confusing and how painful and how that like is an experience so bad that I don't think any of us could understand that. And that's kind of why I decided to use yeah my fictional representation of a real animal and that experiment specifically just because like I wanted a more tender and more somber reflection on what happened to those animals. Well, I like in
0: your story that the little rhesus monkey whose head was transplanted on another body was alive. Whereas in Robert White's experiments, um, the one one monkey lived nine days, I think it was. Mm -hmm. You were saying earlier when you worked with these farmers that they were good people. Right. But they did things that were atrocious. (laughs) Right. And in the the description of uh, Robert J. White, the neurologist, he was a devout Roman Catholic and many people praised his work, how innovative it was and how, how focused. And, and he was a favorite of students. He gave lectures and, and he taught and he, and he received worldwide invitations. People really admired the work that he did and I, I just can't process that.
1: Right. I
0: can't, <laughs> how right. did we it's admire so that? so
1: confusing. Right. It's, yeah. I mean, like the, I think this is something us as vegans, like we encounter probably like every day is like, if you've ever made friends with someone casually and you're like, oh, this is such a nice, lovely person. We get on great. And then you find out something just absolutely terrible about them. And you're like, oh, I made friends with someone and then they're like, oh yeah, I'm a hunter. I like shoot little squirrels in the head. Like that's something we deal with every day in society. And it, it's something that I never can really get a good conclusion to. Like, I can't make sense of that, how someone can be like a quote unquote, nice person and also commit these horrible crimes. And like, I think, yeah, that's another, just like a testament to like, how bizarre human psychology is and how far cognitive dissonance can go. Whereas like, like obviously there's examples of this in relation to human atrocities and like how soldiers will kill innocent civilians and then go home to their own family and have dinner. And like, that's something that just somehow we're able to justify socially and in our individual minds. Yeah.
0: I'm remembering when I was in high school Maybe it wasn't even high school. Maybe it was earlier. We had a science fair and most of us did these corny little projects, but this one friend of mine put a frog under ether and hooked this, his heart to some kind of stick where you could see it moving Mm -hmm. and it, okay. It showed that his heart was beating, uh, right. (laughs) We all know that, but okay. It was fascinating. And this is a good man. He's a caring man. And this was his science experiment that we all got to see that we all accept as normal and interesting. Right. And that's who we are.
1: It's very confusing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's very confusing. So I'm wondering, how did you hear about those monkey transplants? Because that happened some time ago, like half
1: a century ago. So... I actually read about them in Animal Liberation by Peter Singer, probably, like, right after I went vegan in, like, 2015 or 2016, and yeah, I mean, there was, he had, like, this whole section on animal experiments, and there was a section on these transplants that had happened, like, during that era. I mean, there were many of them, actually. There were some on dogs and, like, other animals, and he had a link to a YouTube video in the back of the book, and it was, like, it came with a warning and it was like, this is going to be very disturbing. And of course I typed it in it looked anyway. And it's just this concept is something that's really stuck with me. Because that was really one of the most upsetting things I've ever seen. Because you can see in the video of these animals, they are confused, they are disoriented, they are upset. And then it also stuck with me because then I scrolled down to the YouTube comments and they were like, this is so crazy. Oh my God. Wow. Mm -hmm. I can't like, and then they're like, what does this mean for human medicine? And it's like, yeah, just like the, both the grotesqueness and the sadness and the injustice is all something that stuck with me. So yeah, when I was making this book, I knew I needed to have like this, like non-human victim character. And eventually I did I went through like you know trying to figure out what that would be and I came to the conclusion that it would be this monkey.
0: Who you named Oslo. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I I could guess why you named it Oslo. I don't know if you want to share why you
1: named it Oslo. I I would like to hear your guess because the main reason I named her Oslo was I just like like this song called Oslo in the summertime and I actually know very little about real oslo so
0: Ah, i'm thinking of the the secret agreement that was attempted to be written between palestine and israel a Uh, long time ago okay well not a long time ago and there have been a few there's been a play done on this it was really tremendous actually and it was ultimately signed and there was this period of peace and then there wasn't
1: I see. Yeah. I've heard vaguely about that, but I can't speak on more than that. Yeah.
0: Anyway, the it's a it's yeah. a powerful. So it's a powerful name with a lot of history.
1: I see. And maybe that was the universe working through you. I see. That happens a lot where I'm like, okay, wait, this has more significance than I originally uh, attributed it to be.
0: Yeah. Now when you were young, what did you used to draw before you were? Fifteen and became vegan. When you were,
1: I'm assuming you you've been drawing since you were oh very young. I yeah, like I said, I can't remember when I started drawing, but I've always been drawing. And I I ever since I was little, I did have this fixation on animals, especially dogs. I'm a massive dog person, and I love horses. I love birds, and I was I was homeschooled for like pretty much most of my childhood, and that was definitely changed my development because a lot of the time I just spent alone and outside just observing. And I think that even before I was vegan and understood what that meant, I think the foundation was always there I always had like this genuine curiosity and respect for non-human animals. And like, I have like some of my old sketchbooks somewhere where I just like drew like this morning dove family that lived in our yard, these like grackle birds, like we lived by a canal that had trout and like catfish So yeah, I've always had this, this curiosity with animals and animals have always, since I was little, been my fixation in my art.
0: I'm not going to say this is the reason why you, who you, you are, who you are, but you said homeschooling. Yeah. And I find that a lot of people that I know who have been homeschooled are more creative and are more open to see the truth and the reality in front of us than those who have gone through school and have been indoctrinated to some extent.
1: Right. So should we all be homeschooled? For me like I feel a little mixed about this because I'll be honest like I okay, I love my mother. She's a lovely woman, but like I don't remember her teaching me that much to be honest. Like I actually to this day I I can't do math. Like I have a really hard time with numbers and like because it was kind of the thing where I was homeschooled. So I kind of just did what I wanted and learned what I wanted. Sure. Which makes me really strong at like my creative skills and like kind of some of my practical skills. Like I like building things, I like drawing. I am really weak in other skills. And that I think if I had been kept in public school, I my life might would have gone a different direction for better or worse. And yeah, I mean, I think like we never know. CJ. You never know. We never like, know. Yeah. yeah. Like having, I can't imagine like having children and having to make these decisions. Cause they're like, no matter what you choose for your kids, it's all like terrifying. <laughs> like, like, Absolutely. oh, do yeah. Cause it's like, yeah. If you homeschool your kid, they're also going to be more isolated, which is something I struggled with until more recently. I've just like woke up one day and I was like, I'm going to be extroverted. I actually like talking to people, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> That's
0: funny. I remember when I was young, I uh, was very stubborn and I remember telling myself, I am not going to have a tantrum anymore. I'm just going to be nice now. (laughs) No more tantrums.
1: (laughs) It works like that. Like I, I was so shy. Like I really, like, I think even when Brian interviewed me for this book, I would have like such a hard time with it, but now I'm like, okay, whatever. Like I like, yeah. Everyone has something to teach me and yeah, talking to them is an opportunity to learn.
0: Well, I personally think that we are here to learn and we should be learning mm-hmm. our entire lives. So if there are some subjects that you feel like you need to develop that you missed out on when you were younger, you can certainly jump in. I I love learning languages and I do my Duolingo study every day on my phone with Spanish and German and French. And Duolingo just came out with a math app. Oh, so yeah. you might want to check that out.
1: <laughs> but yeah, the other thing I would say is like as much as I have like these weak skills, it's when, when am I doing math? Like not that often. And I think it's been interesting to think about like how, I mean, like schools are kind of a more recent development as we understand them. And like humans went most of their lives without like this this regimented school like concept. And I, yeah, I think I do have really good practical skills that other people who like weren't raised kind of on their own outside probably don't have.
0: Absolutely. yeah. Oh, th- so many things that we need. I think unfortunately on our culture, probably some of it has to do with not with confidence and right. not, not meeting the bar that everyone's supposed to meet and I don't know who put the bar where it was and decided what it was we were supposed to know but there are skills that we're all supposed to have and we go to school to to learn them and when you don't have them you don't feel as equal I suppose
1: right. don't feel that way not anymore no <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm still figuring out my life and finding my way, but as of right now, you know, things could be a lot worse. I'm pretty satisfied with where I am, like with the skills I have. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Back to the book. As I mentioned before it, it, the art is dark and I Mm -hmm. wanted to assure myself that you do a variety of art and not all of it is dark. And I definitely confirm that on your sites. And to me, it reminded me of a fever dream. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if you heard that or intended it to be, but when I was young, I used to get um, strep throat a lot. I had big infected tonsils with white dots. I had to take penicillin. And I clearly remember being on my pillow and seeing images that were surrounded by this dark, cloudy kind of stuff Mm -hmm which reminds me of the images in your book.
1: Right. So I have not been told the term fever dream specifically, but one thing I've heard a lot is psychedelic. Mm -hmm. And
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I, okay, like I have, okay, I hope my parents aren't listening. This would be bad, but I mean, I have not, like, I'm pretty much completely sober now, but right before I took this book, I this is so cliche, and I did like have a lot of experiences with acid and mushrooms that <laughs> that did really like transform my art. And even like years on, having like completely left all of that behind, I think like those substances taught me to think differently, like visually. Like even now, as a completely sober person, I look like and I see patterns and things. I like take more note of colors, and I also had like. I mean, I think that the times I was taking these substances were really dark times that I probably shouldn't have been always taking them. And I think that there is like a nightmarish aspect to some of this art that is influenced by that part of my life, but yeah.
0: But we are living in a nightmare. We are, and like, that's, yeah. Some of us are very privileged. Right. And we don't have to see any of the nightmare but it's all around us and it's going to incringe on all of us we just got a taste of it this past week
1: I think so yeah and yeah because like kind of the wind salt I started making it was kind of the time like I had been sent home to my parents house when the pandemic happened because we were all kicked out of our dorm rooms and it was like a very jarring experience and I didn't expect it yeah, I didn't expect it. it was definitely a really dark time when I decided I was going to start working on a comic like this. This is like kind of my only long form comic. And I I didn't have that much of a concrete plan going in. I just knew I felt a lot of emotions and I had a lot that I wanted to get out.
0: I think you succeeded. I don't know how you felt when you were done, like if it was therapy or not, but. Yeah. I just wanted to talk a moment about psychedelic mushrooms and LSD. Okay. I, I've never done anything, (laughs) but I I have friends. I grew up in the seventies, you know, and it was all around (laughs) me. And I remember going to Grateful Dead concerts and I think I was the only straight person there, Yeah, (laughs) but there's a lot of science. Unfortunately, we have slammed these medicinal mushrooms and psychedelic drugs. And we're finding that in the right doses, that they can be very beneficial with people that have experienced trauma. Mm-hmm. And trauma is a very interesting thing because it's the trauma we perceive. Trauma can be something that really terrible has happened or something that we perceived was really terrible, but really wasn't, but the impact is the same. Right. These drugs, these medicinal substances, these psychedelic substances can help us see Things. And my understanding is, of course, I know nothing from personal experience, is that we feel this connection to the universe. Right. And that it's bigger than us and we are a part of it. And this connection is very healing. And people come out of these experiences better. And that that, I'm just putting it there. And I hope that um, our our medical professionals can learn how to incorporate these things and help people in a nice way. (laughs)
1: Right. I think that as much as I have had negative experiences with psychedelics, like they also did transform my life. And like I had on mushrooms, very painful trips that, you know, ultimately like therapy and progress on yourself can be one of the most painful things you do. Yeah. Well, I hope you're better now. I think so. I mean, everything is a work in progress, but
0: yeah. Yeah, this is a hard planet to live on. And, you know, frankly, you're a young person. And I don't know how young people are dealing with living these days with everything around us. <laughs> and you know, I remember... I've been a vegan for 35 years, and I've right. been preaching about the environment and animals and cruelty forever and exploitation and racism and homophobism and sexism and speciesisms, all the isms, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I remember talking to my parents, and and my mom was always very moved by the horrible things that I would tell her. And her response very often was, I would rather just not know. Right it's easier to not know
1: <laughs> and it, it certainly is and i think that with the people i've known who are vegan long term like people who consistently care about animals and anti-speciesism like not as something they're trying out but like this is something that is like cemented in their values there's something a little different about them that i can't always pin down but one of those differences i is i think that we have more trouble looking away and more trouble having this cognitive dissonance which helps people live quite frankly a more comfortable life than I think you and I probably live like yeah yeah like most people don't want to know like where the nearest slaughterhouse is let alone look at it and yeah I feel that a lot in New York City there's people who have lived here way longer than I have and they're not even aware that New York City has like 100 slaughterhouses
0: I know is that crazy and let's just talk about copper road for a moment you mentioned that before and you've done some artwork related to that not in this book i saw some on your website um it's it's a religious tradition with a small group of jewish people it's not for all of the jewish religion i was raised jewish i'm not religious anymore but there's a an orthodox synagogue right around the corner for me. And I see Mm -hmm. the chickens in the cages uh, from time to time if I pass by during the right time. And I haven't done any activism for Mm -hmm. that. It's just, I haven't had an opportunity, but I support all of it. And it's strange how our governmental rules kind of support this activity, even though what they're doing is illegal, according to New York sanitary rules. It's just insane. My only regret at one time, I saw the cages and there were a few people in the parking lot hanging out. And I looked at them and I was like, you know, how can you do this? And how can you raise mm-hmm. this young person like this? And then I walked away and I realized I shouldn't have been speaking to them. I should have spoke to the birds. Right. And that's my regret.
1: Yeah. Yeah like as, so I, there's the Kaporos Action Committee, I think I'm saying the right name, that if anyone in New York City wants to get involved in that, there's so many different ways that you can help those birds, and you don't necessarily have to be on the front line seeing really traumatic, horrible things, you can be a foster for birds, you can donate, you can just, you know, raise awareness, and yeah, right now where I am in Crown Heights, like, last year, like, around the corner, like, literally within 10 minutes walking distance, the ritual happened over there and I saw it and it was it was devastating and like when I first started doing this work I would try to talk to the to the random people doing this and their kids and I would try to engage them in a conversation and, and don't like because like they've already made their choices they've already committed to doing something and it's a little too late and yeah do just look at the birds give them watermelon give them water because that is like watermelon the sweetest thing they're ever gonna taste in their entire life and you can't Mm. you can't save you can't save them all you're gonna have to walk away from a lot of them doing this type of work and that's like the one thing that's grounded me is like i couldn't do much but myself and the other volunteers who were there we got to give this like these innocent baby animals like one moment of joy and like a sensation they've never had before
0: yeah yeah. Thank you for that. Oh, I'm curious. You mentioned that you did this as a project at, right. at college. And right. I'm wondering what interactions you had with your advisor, the professor that was working with you. Mm-hmm. Was this a surprising project for that for, person?
1: For, I mean, I think like I got a lot of different reactions. I was luckily, lucky to be able to show this book to a lot of different professors, some who I didn't even have and get their honest opinions and overall like they were all very excited about it and these are not people who are vegan or maybe even not that sympathetic to animal rights but I think like they were very excited about what I was doing because I think without their even without their knowledge of like the animal rights community they kind of got the vibe that this is something new and like Mm -hmm. from just like an illustrator's perspective they liked it like and I they were excited about me being able to do something new in a market that had not been quote unquote tap, which was like kind of not the vibe I was going for. I was like, Sorry. I don't care how marketable this is, but thank you. But yeah, I like, and they were really curious about how I was showing these emotional aspects and like some of these things they didn't understand. Like, like, I think like I had to really explain to them, like, no, this monkey is like based on a real experiment and trying to give like just context for what this book was really about at times was frustrating because I think that they kind of wanted it to fit in like a more normal comics narrative like not that like I mean the comics world is very rich and very diverse and like allows for a lot more than other mediums allow for but they also like didn't really understand some of the things I was going for they didn't really understand like the conclusion of the book itself they're like I mean some people were frustrated by it not having like some grand ending it kind of like lets off but I chose to do that because that's kind of how I feel I didn't get a satisfying animal liberation narrative a lot of times like I didn't get a satisfying narrative in a lot of my life like that's (laughs) kind of how it is and why I've chosen to like make these choices that other people like don't understand the way I've written it because yeah like they wanted like you know, there's like formulaic steps you go through when you're writing any type of narrative that some of which I stuck with and some of which I didn't because I didn't feel that they were realistic to me.
0: Good for you. Yeah. So so the first thing I want to applaud you for is not caring what other people think (laughs) and doing what you want. That's so important for an artist. And Mm -hmm. that's where you were able to come up with something that no one had seen before. Mm -hmm. So I'm applauding you there. Thank
1: you. Thank you.
0: <laughs> the other thing I I, I read um, New Yorker fiction and I'm always mm-hmm. frustrated because so many of the articles have those open endings. They don't right. have, they have right. a happy ending, <laughs> but that's, that's real life. It is.
1: It's, yeah. And, it's
0: frustrating. Yeah. And, and it also opens it up for the reader to think mm-hmm. what should happen next.
1: Right,
0: right. It asks the question. it doesn't give the answer so my so my question next is, are you gonna continue this salt story? I
1: absolutely want to i the problem with being outside of school is that I am realizing a lot of things about how I work without structure, and that is that I am actually really bad at sticking to schedules and being productive, but that's something I'm working on, but I do definitely have like a quote-unquote salt to in mind I don't know if I'll call it that but yeah like I feel like not satisfied where I left off and I think there's a lot more I have to say with these characters and in this world that they live in as a mirror of our own because there's still so much that has happened to me or that I've seen happen to others that I want to talk about.
0: Yeah have you thought about like making it a comic strip? in mm-hmm. media publications so the story takes longer to
1: tell right that is one thing I've considered that it scares me a little bit just because how I work is so messy like there's actually like so I've the actual salt. there's so many pages in the beginning I went back and out and mm-hmm. redid and like mm-hmm. how I work is kind of like constantly like working on the whole book as a collage that I go back and edit in like kind of a non-sequential way so that would make that challenging but also I think that in order to make myself actually stick to a schedule and like also gain more of an audience for this narrative, I think that is something I'm going to have to look into.
0: Yeah, you're going to have to.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I think so.
0: Because if we're going to make positive change, we need all the mediums we can. And this is one of a number. And with close to 9 million people on the planet, 9 billion people on the planet, um, we need all the methods that we can and i think so. <laughs> I, I don't know that everyone will relate to this but i know mm-hmm. it will really grab a specific sector of people right and that's
1: important because we all need to be grabbed <laughs> i think so and like you're also like have been a long-term vegan and i know you've probably like Use so many methods of activism and so had so many discussions, some of which I'm sure were really productive and some of which I'm sure were really frustrating. Like, and yeah, I'm always curious to keep trying new things. And like, I think salt was definitely one of them because I think obviously it is about veganism and it's about animals, but it also, I think someone could pick it up and not be off-put by that who would otherwise be off-put by other like animal rights materials.
0: Absolutely and that's why it's so brilliant
1: mm-hmm. period
0: i read it a few times and mm-hmm. it's important to take time with each image i'm looking at some of them now because although it's a cartoon there's there's a lot in each page with your commentary the the the, the way the characters talk to themselves mm-hmm. we're living in this really difficult world so many people have different variations of anxiety what right. they're doing we're always talking to ourselves with all this negative stuff and I think that, uh, that's very relatable
1: yeah yeah that is one thing that I did get written about some people on Instagram DM me and they're like thank you for your representation of OCD and I'm like okay I didn't know that what that <laughs> was but I guess I have to get myself checked out but yeah like I think like it's I think our world definitely breeds anxiety and breeds neuroses, and yeah, it's something difficult to deal with, and it's certainly something I deal with, and yeah, like I said, I kind of write from a very real place of, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily consider Silas the main character or self-insert, but other people have told me that I, that he is for me, but yeah.
0: Yeah, Okay, CJ, what are you doing now? Well, Um, in this moment, you're talking to me, but.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, right now I'm working mostly as like like a dog sitter, but I am also looking, you know, to continue my comics art and continue my art in general. And I'm trying to figure out the best way to move forward with that. Yeah, which has, I mean, I don't really have much more to say than that, just because I am at, you've caught me in a bit of a weird nebulous place in terms of my career. Mm -hmm. Well, that's important. Yeah.
0: You know, people don't realize that, but especially for an artist, we have to step back and Mm -hmm. rest and rejuvenate and the brain, the subconscious does all kinds of crazy things, but doing that is very important.
1: Yeah, I think so. Like, I mean I'm making enough money to live taking care of animals it's it could definitely be a lot worse like I feel very fulfilled and beyond that like I still I have definitely taken a step back from my activism specifically with slaughterhouses just because I think like with most people who do that work there is a breaking point that we reach which is really sad because I, in the time that I've done this work I've seen almost everyone I started with reach the same place as I am which is like kind of feeling beyond burnout like and feeling really confused on how to progress and not wanting to ignore these issues but also just like being like i don't know what i'm doing and i don't know how to but i don't know how to move forward
0: and for people who think that animal activism doesn't care about humans when you step into an environment like that, there are the workers that are there all the time. And that's like the only work that they can do. And you have to think of the trauma that they have, that they experience day in and day out.
1: Yeah. And like going back to what I said about in the beginning about, you know, the farmers I worked with, like, that is a parallel. Like I bring up, like when I am in a slaughterhouse and seeing or talking to these workers is like, yeah. Like, obviously I deeply resent what they're doing but I think it does us no favors as animal activists to dehumanize these people. Yeah, I mean, because it is systemic, it's like you don't see wealthy white people working in a slaughterhouse. You see usually undocumented immigrants who usually have very little other options and like, yeah, this work is changing them in a way that they probably did not want change and they probably would, at least sometimes, would rather do something else in our ideal world.
0: Yeah. And now I'm reading about these industries and similar industries that are trying to get children to work there as uh, well. Right. Which is really insane. <sighs> We're going backwards, not forwards. All right. I'm looking at some of your websites. I thought I might link some of them in the mm-hmm. post for this podcast. It, it says that you do artwork, if people are interested for portraits or a variety of things. Did you want to talk about that?
1: Right. I, I do. So I mean for my personal art, it's this, as I said, like psychedelic mishmash of all these characters. But I also um have like a small side business doing like I don't I don't really like the term pet, but like companion animal portraits. And I have like a lot of fun with that. And yeah, that's kind of where I've landed in terms of my, like my commercial art right now, and I also do every now and then I do some work for um, nonprofits, usually related to animals, which is some of my most fulfilling work. I've done like a couple pieces for Micro Sanctuary Resource Center when they want like just an educational piece or like just a piece to up- uplift people in relation to animals and taking care of them, which has been really fulfilling. And I. Ideally would look forward to doing a lot more work like that for nonprofits.
0: Okay. Well, CJ, I see you going places and I wish you a lot of luck and just do what you want. Right. And <laughs> don't care what anybody else thinks. <laughs> the universe is channel channeling something through you. And I want to see what comes of all of that.
1: Right. I I see it. I I'm going to keep just, I mean, just keep keeping on every day at the time.
0: Right. And just eat a nice, healthy vegan diet. Take care of yourself. My best there. (laughs) Okay, good. We need you. Yeah. I've enjoyed this moment talking with you, CJ, and talking about your book, Salt, a confessional animal liberation narrative. I'm going to be reviewing it again, just because sometimes I need to be moved like that.
1: Yeah. Thank you very much for interviewing me. Thank you for your time. Like, yeah. And thank you for your interest in salt.
0: Yeah. I look forward to see what's coming next. All right.
1: All right. Take care. Be
0: well. Keep drawing. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's our episode for today. Coyote Jacobs, the author of Salt, a confessional animal liberation narrative. Pick up a copy. Keep it around. Share it with friends. It's such a quick read and people won't even know what they're getting into. And then you can have a conversation. Okay. Let's all do that. In the meantime, have a delicious week. Bye-bye.